Welcome to CellSiders, a look at the business and technology of batteries from the cell side of things. Today, we'll be looking at the chemical cornerstone of VW's mass market battery strategy and take a few listener questions. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, battery scientist and Switzerland's most employable Spaniard, Jordi Sastre. Jordi, how have you been? Hey there, Ben. It's a great day here in Switzerland, and I'm super excited to be joining you guys to talk about this exciting topic of manganese-rich cathodes and other battery tech questions. Okay. And to complete our crew, from the depths of his secret lair, thousands of meters below the Earth's surface, the masked man himself, Mr. Litmus. Mr. L, how are things on your end? Hey, doing good, Ben and Jordi. Uh, pleasure to be back again, trying to discuss about how the metals of the earth can contribute into the next battery revolution. Right. And indeed, today we're doing a deep dive. Uh, Volkswagen's Power Day was last week, and one of its announcements was truly immense. That's right. Volkswagen unveiled plans to mass-produce manganese-rich cathodes for its volume segment. And if we take their roadmap at face value, this would mean hundreds of gigawatt hours of manganese-heavy batteries by the end of the decade. We've gone into the deep end on manganese chemistries. Uh, Let's start with the basics. Mr. L, what makes manganese-rich cathodes attractive for Volkswagen? To to basically understand the focus on these metals that go into the cathode materials, we need to understand what exactly is the global availability of the metals in the Earth's crust. So if if you take a look at a brief uh, relative abundance chart, we see that manganese availability globally is at a minimum either 10x to a 1000x, so uh, greater than that of nickel or cobalt. So the availability can be as as high as a 1000x greater than nickel or cobalt within the Earth's crust. That just means that manganese is more richly available. So that, that... particularly is a very interesting aspect to consider because the more widely something is available, the cheaper it tends to be, general supply-demand characteristics. So it's one thing for for an element to be abundant. It's another thing for a supply chain for that element to be well-developed. So uh, how is manganese already used maybe in other supply chains for other industries or indeed for the battery industry itself? Is this something that would need to be really uh, dramatically developed or does this build on really sort of pre-existing infrastructure? Right. So if we consider the primary cathode materials, that those, those, those include nickel, iron, phosphorus, manganese, aluminum, right? Now, out of these, if you look at iron, manganese, nickel, these are widely used in the current steel production industry. So Steel production is by far like the the, the the trendsetter in terms of all of metal extraction and all of the metal industry itself. So if, if you look at these materials in that context, so manganese and nickel, their, their primary use as of today is, is in the steel production industry. Now, since it is already being utilized, that's, that's not to say that, you know, there cannot be an additional demand that can be satiated in the battery market. But the the... Supply chains already exist to to set up that you know high metallurgical grade manganese, high metallurgical grade nickel. Cobalt is an exception in that context because it's it's purely mined just for uh, our battery uses as of today. 
Um, so if you look at like cobalt use and uh, in 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 the world as of today, it's it's basically uh, just out of uh, the African region in Congo with with almost 80% of the consumption going into China and in the rechargeable battery industry. So that's that that basically gives you an effective landscape of manganese as well as cobalt. Now coming to nickel itself, uh, nickel again, the uh, worldwide consumption is primarily in the, uh, in the, in the steel industry. So uh, production of stainless steel and, and related nickel alloys. Not so much so in the battery industry, but it's that's that's slowly picking up. How much does Volkswagen stand to benefit from switching from the state-of-the-art nickel-heavy chemistries, similar to those announced by Tesla during its battery day? Uh, how how much does Volkswagen stand to benefit shifting from nickel-rich chemistries to manganese-rich chemistries from an industrial production point of view? So I think the value over there is is immense because the current manganese market primarily caters to the stainless steel industry. So no one is really focusing on developing a supply chain around manganese, which is more readily available. Now, what what do you think is the is the primary region where switching to renewable energy, something that is more sustainable, something that is readily available, is cheaply accessible, right? Now, in that context, if we look at the landscape of the metals that go into the cathodes, manganese is more readily available than nickel or or cobalt. So what Volkswagen is doing over here in that context is making a switch to manganese, which is more readily available and is is, is far more diversified uh, in its in its availability. So manganese reserves as of today, um, it's it's fairly evenly distributed. But uh, the bulk of it, again, comes from South Africa, comes from Australia, comes from Brazil. And, and China doesn't really have so much so of reserves of, of manganese. So it, it pretty much puts all of these battery developing countries or battery developing companies at an even scale because it's not concentrated in, in one person's uh, back area. Okay, that actually, that makes a lot of sense. So it's not just about how abundant manganese is, it's about where you can get it um, and who you can get it from. Correct. Okay, great. Um, So that's a sort of macro level look at manganese, but let's dig down really into the micro level and the chemistry level. Um, Jordi, you've done a deep dive for us on manganese cathodes. Uh, Just first, give us a quick... Uh, survey of the manganese cathode landscape. What are the key categories that we need to know about? So let me go over the different categories, different classes of cathodes. So the most basic one is the the layered cathode. So this is a structure that Sony first introduced in their in their video recorders in the early nineties. Uh, the most basic layered cathode is cobalt oxide. Lithium cobalt oxide, basically also normally referred to as LCO. The industry has steered towards nickel and manganese-rich chemistries, the typical NCMs that we hear quite a lot about. So NCM stands for lithium nickel cobalt manganese oxide. Also, there is a market for NCA, which is lithium nickel cobalt aluminum oxide. The nickel supply chain could be constrained in the future as the demand for lithium-ion battery rises exponentially. Is it possible to get a layer cathode as lithium cobalt oxide, but with a manganese uh, composition? 
Actually, scientists have tried hardly to do. Uh, I have worked hard on this, but uh, it turns out that manganese weak. It's weakly bonded to its neighboring atoms, and it doesn't form a stable structure. So basically, manganese needs needs, needs to be mixed with different uh, compounds, either cobalt or nickel, to get a stable um, a stable structure, stable crystal structure. So. Scientists have worked hard on this, and so there is there is a lot of uh, research publications where they showed successful or well-performing cathode materials with uh, manganese, manganese uh, contents up to seventy percent and thirty percent of nickel. So, and, and also this this they tend to associate them with uh, lithium-rich contents, so about twenty percent excess lithium to make it to increase further the capacity. And the, and, the, and the capacities of these cathodes are, are actually comparable to standard NCMs, but they suffer from instability issues. Let me just jump in here and ask, you know, I think I've probably read the word manganese more in the past week than in the rest of my life put together. Um, have manganese-rich chemistries been used for EV batteries in the past? So here we, we go to, the, to this other class of materials, the spinel class. The main contender in this class of materials is uh, lithium manganese oxide, basically um, um, all manganese lithium oxide. Um, this structure is a three-dimensional spinel structure. It's a, as, as contrary to the, to the layered oxide, which normally is considered as a 2D because the lithium ions intercalate in and out of kind of slabs. And this was actually commercialized in, in the first version of the Le Nissan Leaf car. Uh, this car used a uh, 24 kilowatt hours LMO-based battery, but at a later stage, Nissan switched to NCMs-based chemistries because of the big improvements in performance that these chemistries uh, experience, and also because of the decreasing price of these materials. I remember um, some of the problems with those with those first generation Nissan Leafs. Um, it was a sort of an interplay between the lack of a really uh, high quality thermal management system um, and uh, leading to then really reduced, severely compromised cycle lives. Um, so basically the batteries would get too hot and uh, it would really impair the the lifetime of the battery. Was that due to the manganese-rich chemistry that was used? Mm -hmm. Correct, yes. So basically, manganese-rich chemistries are much more unstable than cobalt and nickel-rich chemistries. Basically, because manganese bonds very quickly to its neighboring uh, atoms, so it tends to decompose or leach out of the battery, especially at high temperatures. So this is the main issue in all the different chemistries uh, containing manganese. So the stability is severely compromised because of the presence of manganese. Uh, in the in the case of LMO, we have these two issues. So we have the issue of the stability, so they would degrade the batteries would degrade rather fast. And we had also the issue with energy density. So lithium manganese oxide has a rather low capacity compared to to other layered oxides, NCMs. So that's why the industry moved away from this category of, of this class of materials. And actually nowadays, I think they are only mostly used only for power tools where high powers are required. And also as part of blends in some EVs 
to increase a bit the voltage and the power capability of the of the cathode. Okay, so is this one of the advantages then of manganese-rich chemistries is that they may be more uh, unstable, but they can offer higher voltages? Exactly, this is one of the main advantages. They offer higher voltages and also higher in the ca- in the class of spinels. So we have to to stick to these different classes. So if we stay to if we look at the spinels because of their three D structure, because how the atoms are arranged inside the material, the the lithium can diffuse faster so we can get faster charge and higher discharge currents so and moreover we also see observe higher cathode voltages so this also improves the energy density in the case of the of the pure lithium uh, pure manganese lithium manganese oxide spinel we had uh, the, the the material suffers from from this degradation the, the the voltage range that could be cycled is also limited therefore also for their influencing the the capacity of the of the uh, cathode but there is a very promising material in this family which is i would call the rising star it's a lithium nickel manganese oxide it it, it consists of 25 percent nickel and 75 percent manganese and it's a it's co- classified as a high voltage spinel cathode because it offers voltages of around 4.7 volts which is around which is about 0.8 volts above the standard nickel uh, NCM or the lithium, the layered oxides. Uh, just to add to that, I think the implications of having a higher voltage cathode are are fairly advantageous for the industry as a whole, considering fast charging capabilities. Uh, each increase in 0.1 volt can effectively double the the rate. Uh, capabilities of the battery cell. That's that's just how the uh, electrochemistry functions. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Jordi, but uh, the implications of going to higher voltage cathodes are are, are potentially, you know, they, they could open up an entire landscape of uh, electrolytic chemistries over here. Um, and, and that in particular relates well to the entire solid state a landscape as a whole because the the main selling point of the solid state chemistries is that we will enable fast charging and discharging capabilities so if you have an electrolyte that can sustain much higher charging and discharging capabilities uh, upgrading your cathode to a higher voltage is is a very big plus point and furthering to to add to Jordi's chemistry analogies is uh, the the more manganese you get, the more uh, you are capable of going to higher voltages. So th- this this makes sense in their entire landscape of you know the end game of reaching solid states, the end game of reaching higher voltages, the end game of reaching fast charging and discharging capabilities. So one of the big issues with this high potential cathode, so high voltage cathodes is, as you say, is something that is desired. But in, tradi- in conventional lithium-ion batteries, the liquid electrolyte cannot withstand these high voltages. So it tends to degrade when you cycle a battery up to, to 4.7. So you cannot operate a battery with these huge potentials. And there it makes a lot of sense to switch toward, to, to solid-state electrolytes, which basically, in principle, can withstand these, uh, these high potentials. Right. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed watching the solid state battery uh, industry evolve is um, 
and maybe a way in which it's relevant to these manganese-rich chemistries also is you have sort of a you have sort of a catch twenty two with manganese where. Um, from what we've seen from BASF, for example, manganese cathodes have much better cycle lives um, when they're operated at relatively lower temperatures, so uh, 25 degrees centigrade as opposed to 45 degrees centigrade. Um, the data published by BASF indicated that you would get almost a doubling of cycle life uh, operating at that lower temperature. But a lot of the common or I shouldn't say common, a lot of the contenders for solid-state electrolytes um, are actually just the opposite, that they deliver better cycle lives at higher temperatures. And so you have this uh, sort of conflict between a need to keep temperatures low to keep your manganese cathode stable and keep temperatures high to keep your solid-state electrolyte stable. Um, the only solid-state electrolyte that I'm aware of where that's not the case is the electrolyte developed by QuantumScape, which is, of course, VW's solid-state battery partner. Um, so it seems like Volkswagen's uh, high-manganese cathode strategy dovetails very nicely with their solid-state battery technology in a way that I think competitors might find difficult to replicate. So it all goes down to the liquid electrolyte, basically. So if you have higher temperatures, the, the reactivity of the liquid electrolyte with the cathode will be increased because of the thermal, the, the temperature, and, and this will degrade the cathode faster. That's why BASF is showing this uh, 500 cycles only at five, 45 degrees. In solid state, ideally, you wouldn't have as much reactions because if you have a stable solid electrolyte, you will not have interaction. So it doesn't matter if you go to high temperatures. So there you could have a, you could have find a compromise kind of, of a trade-off between temperature and, and stability. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in that context, uh, what you are doing is that, of course, going to higher voltages uh, comes with its own bit of side reactions, so to speak. Like ideally, you just want that voltage to drive a lithium atom going from the cathode into the electrolyte and to the anode. But, you know, you can't really address that 100%. There are obviously going to be some side effects associated with operating at such a high voltage. Uh, so you'd, you'd have like lithium reacting with, with materials in your uh, liquid electrolytes, which would cause such side reactions and degrade the battery capacity overall. So obviously coming, going, going to higher voltage comes with its own set of side effects. And that's where... Uh, one needs to do do a compromise uh, study or you know an optimization study of what exactly is the right composition suited with the right electrolyte suited with the right anode so basically it, it's not as if you know you can uh, fit together one jigsaw piece with another jigsaw piece and you know if it mates 75% it's it's fine we can call it a battery cell we need to consider the exact three combinations that are going to deliver a 99.99% Coulombic efficiency, so to speak. So there is a little bit of speculation or a little bit of uncertainty about where VW is going to be getting these manganese-rich chemistries from, what suppliers, what technology partners they'll be working with. And Jordi, you dug into this question a little bit. So what can you tell me about the high manganese cathode landscape right now from a sort of uh, engineering and business point of view. 
So as we already mentioned, or we already discussed, uh, BASF is uh, playing a big role in development of manganese-rich cathodes, especially this. So as far as I know, or what they have published is in regards to these uh, manganese-layered, uh, manganese-rich layered cathodes. So um, this NCM 307, 30% nickel, 0% cobalt, so no cobalt at all, and 70% manganese. They've shown very recently very good results, 100,000 cycles, at 25 degrees and uh, of course uh, thermal stability is not so good so at 45 degrees you get about half the, the cycle life and they very interestingly they show energy densities comparable to NCM622 which is the standard cathode nowadays in, in EVs in the EV in the industry. Uh, there are other companies which are also doing very interesting work one of them is the um, the Danish, uh, it's called, well, the company is called Halder Topso. It's a Denmark-based company that has developed a, basically NM, LNMO cathodes with a proprietary coating and some new electrolyte formulations that allow to cycle this high-voltage spinel cathode over long-term cycling, uh, over long-term cycles. Um, although the results are not spectacular, I think they're showing something like uh, 500 cycles at room temperature, it's promising, I have to say. And, and in parallel to, the, to this company, there's also a Canadian-based company, a Canada-based company called NanoOne, which is also doing the same. It's, it's developing uh, some production processes for LNMO, LNMO uh, with some proprietary, some proprietary process. I, I don't know exactly the details. And they also have patented a surface treatment for LNMO, which mitigates the instability issue in, in liquid electrolytes. And as far as I know, uh, Volkswagen had partnered with this company for a couple of years already for the development of this class of materials. So this is a strong hint that Volkswagen might be interested in these high, high, high voltage spinel materials. Also, uh, also interestingly, Matt Lacey, who was working previously as a researcher in Uppsala University, and now it's at Scania, which is part of the Volkswagen group, announced or said or mentioned that um, the, that Volkswagen had since some years ago a partnership with the Uppsala University in precisely this topic in developing of in development of, of LNMO cathodes for EV applications. Also, I think James Fried from Bloomberg NEF he said that his money was on this material, so I guess he has some strong hints that point out towards this material as well. What is the big picture impact? Um, obviously, Volkswagen is has positioned itself as a leader in EVs and EV battery productions. And you could imagine that where Volkswagen leads, uh, the rest of the industry is likely to follow. So what could a shift towards manganese-rich cathodes, what kind of effect could that have on the EV battery industry, um, both of its impact for consumers and also its impact on the environment. Okay, so th there are different different aspects that we need to consider about manganese-rich cathodes. So uh, from a chemistry point of view, or let's say from a, from a material science point of view, uh, these materials, uh, they have good performance, energy densities, and high, high, high voltages, which is good for a cathode material. But the, the issue with uh, the manganese is, of course, the stability. So we could see good performance or Performance is equivalent to the standard NCMs, or maybe even better, but at the expense of stability. So there is a lot of work to be done still on improving the stability of these materials. 
From chemical, there's also a, a big point that we didn't mention before is the chemical stability. So manganese is much less reactive than nickel rich chemistry. So uh, what we see, for example, from this NCM, nickel rich NCMs and NCM811, for example, is that they tend to catch fire because nickel oxide is very reactive. So it tends to oxidize uh, the, the electrolyte and this can burn. On the other on the on the other side, manganese is much less reactive, so it's a much safer cathode material. And then, in as we already mentioned at the beginning of the of the episode, uh, manganese is much more abundant, uh, and mining is much more common, or there is more more many more mining sites, and probably environmentally, it's much more benign to mine this material than rather than cobalt and nickel. Mr. L, anything to add to that on the on the mining or extraction side? Yeah, so basically if you're looking at it from the abundance perspective, uh, obviously like I mentioned earlier, manganese is almost either 10 to 10 to 1000 times more available than nickel or cobalt resources. So in that context, um, the, the the supply chain is less constrained when you're when you're considering manganese rich chemistries. The other aspect itself is basically not just abundance, but, you know, how concentrated the ores itself are. Manganese ores tend to be much more concentrated than nickel or cobalt ores. Now, you can have like availability of an ore uh, which which contains 98% of the the material or 48% of the material or 8% of the material. now, eight percent of hundred x units is uh, is is far of a uh, is is a very low yield as opposed to forty eight percent of hundred units. So basically, for the same amount of effort that you put in to extract a material that has forty eight x forty eight units out of hundred units, you're you're using. Um, six times as many resources to extract another material which is eight units out of a hundred units so in in that context uh, you're you're putting much less load in your upstream metal extraction capabilities uh, and thereby you're causing much less of a stress to the environment itself so that way if you look at it manganese ores are far more concentrated than nickel ores or cobalt ores so you know it's it's much better for the entire supply chain to shift towards more manganese rich chemistries to or to shift towards more nickel manganese rich chemistries okay that's an excellent point and i hadn't even thought of that but it makes perfect sense um if your uh, raw materials are more concentrated in the ores that you're extracting uh, it's just a lot less work, requires a lot less energy, a lot less equipment to produce an equivalent amount of that uh, finished product, that that input material, um, which absolutely has a huge impact on both the cost, but also the environmental impact of manganese extraction versus nickel. Um, that's a great point. You can draw a similar analogy to what Tesla does today also. Tesla is, is trying to shift towards NCA chemistry, so nickel, cobalt, aluminum chemistries. Um, of course, I mean, those those tend to substitute the manganese with the aluminum. Aluminum is, uh, again, very widely available um, around the world. But again, you know, you, you take a hit in the uh, more of a battery performance metrics over there. So the, the obvious choice over here is, is to shift towards 
more manganese rich chemistries which which give you that sweet spot of getting better stability getting better uh, electrolytic uh, capabilities electro better electrochemistry capabilities and at the same time causes less harm to the environment than your cobalts and nickels of the world it's a great example of the fact that an industry doesn't always develop in the way that it's predicted. Um, a lot of people looking forward 10, 15 years, projecting out the demand for things like cobalt, for things like nickel, uh, compared to current production amounts, have said it's just not realistic for EVs to get the kind of market penetration that companies like Tesla and Volkswagen are, are betting on because the, the amount of cobalt, the amount of graphite, the amount of nickel being produced is just not enough. Um, and of course, you can always build out more supply, you can build out additional mining uh, capacity, you can find new sources, or you can find substitutions, right? You can switch out different materials that maybe have a different, uh, more advantageous set of properties. And it's this kind of innovation that really is what drives cost curves down. Um, it's what drives adoption. It's this ability to innovate and substitute and find new ways to do things um, that I think makes me so optimistic for the development of the electric vehicle industry. Okay, for those manganese maniacs that want to dig even deeper, we've put together a post for our new newsletter, Cellside Intel. Go to cellsiders.com to read the full report. And now let's shift over to some listener questions. We got quite a few on Twitter. Um, again, if you have questions you'd like us to answer, please tweet at us at Cellsiders. Uh, we've got three different questions. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say three different questions. Uh, we've got three listeners who asked multi-part questions. Um, the first question comes from Nick Zabinden. I think that's how you pronounce that. Um, saying, would love to see you go through Tesla battery day. So we've talked a lot about Volkswagen in our first two episodes, obviously. Um, but let's roll back the clock a little bit about six months ago and sort of do a battery day retrospective. Uh, what stood out to you at the time and in the intervening six months, um, what do you think is most important or most relevant uh, for the EV industry um, from Tesla's battery day? Just a small comment about this. I, I had the feeling comparing uh, Volkswagen Power Day on, battery te uh, bat on Tesla's battery day, Tesla was looking more towards the near future midterm, so 2025, whereas Volkswagen was looking far beyond in the to the 30s, and and, and that's what the innovations that Tesla presented are probably more um, these nickel-rich chemistries and so on. These are near future uh, technologies, whereas Volkswagen is like presenting solid states, presenting these manganese-rich cathodes, which are probably not coming until late 20s, early 30s. Mr. L, anything to add? Sure. So again, I agree with uh, Jordi over here in that context is that Tesla needs to be profitable right now. So they're optimizing their current supply chain based off of what they need to do right now. And no doubt, again, like we mentioned in our previous uh, uh, podcast the the entire uh, global battery space is is coming up to be a two terawatt hour uh, kind of a race so there's 2000 gigafactories that need to be made and not every gigafactory is going to be of the same exact development prototype uh, you're, you're going to have different chemistries you're going to have different um, 
uh, electrolytes, you're going to have different anode chemistries, you're going to have different cathode chemistries. Uh, and not necessarily all of those gigafactories would succeed, but uh, Tesla is trying to replicate what it knows and what it can do efficiently as of today. So in, in that context, it, it doesn't surprise me what uh, Tesla is gearing up towards is that let's let's we, we, we've run our models 4680 comes out to be uh, the best uh, possible size combination. Again, going tabless is, is something that fits into their model and their process manufacturing conditions and their testing conditions subsequently. Testing is a whole game, whole different game that we still need to address about. So in, in that context, I think Tesla is, is focused, is, is razor sharp focused. I'm, I'm, again, from the previous podcast, it shouldn't appear that, you know, we're, we're not considering Tesla as a major player, but uh, Tesla has a style of working. Volkswagen has, has a style of working. Um, eventually, you know, both of them are going to be industry leaders in this context, much like the Apple and Samsung in the consumer electronics space as of today. But uh, you're, you're, you're looking at, uh, the the overall industry itself is going to benefit from these two types of approaches. Yeah, absolutely. And just a couple of things to to add. Um, so first, of course, Tesla presented the forty six eighty cylindrical cell, but Tesla has been extremely flexible in the suppliers it's used, even in the cell formats it's used. Um, Tesla has used the same or a similar prismatic cell format for its cars as Volkswagen is moving to with a unified cell architecture. So the 4680 cell is not going to be universal even among uh, Tesla cars, much less the the rest of the industry. Um, in addition, my, my impression at the time and, and increasingly my impression of what Tesla revealed is they've clearly put a lot of time and resources into battery development and research to optimizing their supply chain to really improving the performance of the existing chemistries and, and trying to drive towards new ones. What I didn't see is anything that is truly unique to Tesla. I didn't see anything that Tesla is doing that nobody else is doing. Um, even some of the uh, technologies that were quite hyped about uh, for example, dry electrode processing. Um, we saw on Power Day that Volkswagen apparently has a dry electrode processing technology that it's developing and rolling out. So while Tesla is definitely driving uh, you know, costs down, driving performance up, I don't see it doing that in a way that its competitors aren't also doing. I don't see it doing anything that no one else is doing. Um, so from the point of view of maybe somebody who's invested in Tesla or who thinks that Tesla is going to squeeze all the competition out of the market. I didn't see anything on battery day that suggested that's what the future is going to look like. Uh, I mean, we must say that Tesla is five years ahead of, of the competition. So maybe, I mean, how they control the supply, supply chains, how they engineer these cells. Volkswagen is making very nice announcements, but they have still to, to get this uh, into production, which Tesla already has done. Yeah, but don't forget, Tesla, Volkswagen has uh, the kind of uh, 100 years worth of experience, well, not exactly 100 years, but almost uh, those many years of experience in car making, which, uh, which they have seen a lot of ebbs and a lot of peaks and valleys through. So in that context, they, they understand uh, how the landscape is going to change and they are preparing for it. 
Now, they, that may not necessarily show up in their uh, financial statements as X percentage of vehicles delivered as compared to Tesla. But uh, you have to understand these are these are long long lasting automotive players. They understand the automotive game probably better than anyone else. I think all that they need to catch up on is the um, modifications needed in the automotive landscape to shift to an EV heavy portfolio rather than a gasoline heavy portfolio. Yeah, definitely Volkswagen is preparing very well for this. I doubt about other automakers, but Volkswagen it's it has chances to become the the Samsung of the of the consumer electronics. And my my point was more directed towards the other battery manufacturers that Tesla would ostensibly be supplementing or possibly competing with, the LG Chems, the CATLs, the Panasonics, um of course, Tesla buys batteries from all three of those companies now, and I don't see Tesla leaving them in the dust. And if Tesla stops buying from LG, as uh, Volkswagen just announced, that they were cutting off uh, LG, Chem, and SK Innovation completely out of their battery roadmap, you know, those manufacturers are going to turn around and sell to someone else. Um, and it's not clear to me that Tesla is so leaps and bounds ahead of its suppliers that it's in a position to put them out of business. Um, at least not yet. So the next question comes from Ricardo Taormina, uh, who says, would love to hear some critical thinking about amorphous solid electrolytes for solid state batteries. Jordi, that is definitely your wheelhouse. So uh, I'll let you address amorphous solid electrolytes. That's really, really, really my topic. Amorphous electrolytes, that's my topic. Uh, so Amorphous solid electrolytes. So if we look at the different type of solid electrolytes, we have a bunch. There is this class of uh, materials which are amorphous, means that they basically they are disordered. There is no crystalline structure in them. The poster child of amorphous solid electrolytes is lipon. It's lithium phosphorus oxynitrite. So lipon is an amorphous electrolyte. Uh, I like it a lot because it's super stable material. It prevents very well the formation of lithium dendrites. So the big problem in solid state batteries, lithium metal solid state batteries. However, on the downside, it has a very big downside, which is the ionic conductivity, it's how fast the, the ions move through the electrolyte. It's like two to three orders of magnitude below the, the state-of-the-art solid electrolyte. So that's why it's used in, in micro batteries, where it's only a, a thin, like micrometer thick film. But I believe that whoever uh, managed to increase the ionic conductivity of this material will hit a jackpot. And Maybe this is a lot of a speculation, but I think or that maybe QuantumScape has done something on this sense. Have you read anything in QuantumScape's patents that suggests they're using uh, an approach derived from this material? Doesn't look like, but they also they, they most of the patents are focused on the on the gar lithium garnet electrolyte, which is a crystalline material. And in some of their slides, they have later shown that uh, this material, they tried with this material at the beginning, but somehow didn't work out so well. So maybe they have some new composition, maybe an amorphous composition or a combination of, of a crystalline plus an amorphous material. Here, maybe let me advertise myself a bit. I did a lot of research over the past months on amorphous material combined with crystalline materials for preventing lithium dendrite formation in solid state batteries. So it it works. Okay, interesting. Let me just ask you while we're on the subject, how or why is it that Lipon does such a good job of suppressing dendrites? 
I think it's a bit from the from its from amorph from its amorphous nature. So normally these crystalline materials they have a lot of defects, they have cracks, they have grain boundaries where the lithium tends to grow through. If you have a very like homogeneous amorphous material where there is no defects inside, or the opposite, there are too many defects, so everything is like very homogenized. So there is no place where the lithium will tend to nucleate and grow through. Okay, but obviously because it's so amorphous. It's not as conductive, and the lithium ions can't uh, can't go through that material as effectively. Exactly, that's that's a big issue. So that's why I say if someone manages to increase ionic conductivity of amorphous material, they might have the solution for solid state batteries. Uh, just just uh, as a reference, there is a just just for for the record, there is a, there is a publication, for example, from Oak Ridge National Labs, where they show like ten thousand cycles. Just uh, it's incredible for solid state battery with lipon, so it's super stable. Um, and our last question is from John Regnart, uh, who asks, "I'd like to hear thoughts on whether chemistries like sodium ion, lithium sulfur, conversion reaction cathodes, lithium air, or multivalent chemistries like magnesium ion have a place in the automotive or other sectors." I have my views, he says. Um, so this is sort of like a four or five part question. Um, Let's just address the question of chemistries like sodium or magnesium ion. Do they have a place in automotive? So uh, thanks for the question. Actually, I, I would love to make an episode for each of these chemistries because it's so interesting and there is so many things to talk about. But just briefly, sodium ion. Uh, I'm sorry. First, I, I want to apologize to my colleagues working on sodium, adium, uh, so, sodium ion, but I'm a bit bearish on this technology. So from a fundamental point of view, from a physics point of view, sodium will always be worse than lithium because of its nature. It's heavier. It's uh, The movement of sodium is more sluggish. Uh, but there has been a lot of uh, hype around it because of course, sodium is much more abundant than lithium. So, for example, sodium is present in table salt. So, it's it's really it's a really abundant material. And they, the experts or the researchers working on this, claim that they they could cut cut down costs, raw material costs, by about potentially thirty percent of the lithium ion. So, the big hope of these technologies uh, is for applications in grid storage, where the energy density is not so important, but the cost is. But um, honestly, I don't believe there is any place for this technology in electrical vehicles in the near near mid-term future. Maybe in 20 years or 30 years, there's been a revolution in solid-ion bat- sodium-ion batteries, but I don't think this will come soon. Yeah. For, for automotive, the big... For automotive, the question is always, can the battery deliver enough energy to move itself? And uh, in other sectors, that's not necessarily a problem. You don't really have to worry about moving the battery with the energy in the battery. But in automotive and aviation, it's a critical concern. Yeah, I absolutely agree with uh, both uh, Ben and Jordi over there that um, in the uh, high-performance EV space, you need to have a very high energy density threshold to to have that kind of a mobility frontier. But not every application is going to wait for the silver bullet of high energy density uh, for the future. So, you know, while while you can try to rule it out from the automotive sector, sodium batteries, uh, conversion chemistries, sulfide batteries, other, other types of battery technology are still going to have their place in the world. 
there's 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 a huge uh, energy race uh, there's a huge energy demand to be satiated and lithium ion to be frank while i would like for it to satisfy every category but that there's just just not enough production in the world to satiate that capacity so you will have some space where sodium ion comes into play you will have some space where uh, conversion chemistries will come into place so those those uh, those technologies will have their place in the world it's just that we won't see them highly publicized um in the nasdaq stock exchange <laughs> uh just a comment about conversion cathodes i mean here i i actually i disagree in the sense that i think this technology if, if it's developed further it could see some some space in in the EV, so basically lithium metal as anode and a conversion cathode. And I think it's even on the roadmap of QuantumScape, solid power and other solid state batteries. Because these cathode materials have potential to increase the energy density by about double, even more of what we get in, in conventional lithium ion batteries. Then again, you have to look at their capabilities for production and stabilities over the long course of uh, them being cycled. So I think that's something that still needs to be proven out. I think there's a whole episode uh, to do with conversion cathodes and a whole episode to do with lithium sulfur. So um, I think we'll have to leave it there for this week. That's all for us this week. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and share on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions you'd like our battery experts to answer, please tweet at us. Again, our handle is at Cellsiders, C-E-L-L-S-I-D-E-R-S. Our theme music was composed by Seneca. He can be had on Twitter under at music underscore Seneca. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Music.